0: I'm Melissa Lee, and this is Fast Money. Tonight's Trader Lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Karen Feinerman, and James McDonald. Tonight on Fast, charged up. GM driving to a new all-time high as the company plugs into the commercial EV market. We'll break down how our traders are playing the electric move. Plus, Netflix takes the crown, the company doubling down on content. But will the news send investors streaming into the stock? We'll debate that. And we're all over the after-hours action shares of KV Homes. The stock popping on results. The company's conference call is just getting underway. We'll bring you the hot housing headlines from the quarter. But we start off with a question. Simple question. What would you say if I told you a stock had risen nearly 25 percent in the last seven trading sessions? That's every session of this young year. You might call it eye popping or momentum driven. Well, that's exactly what has happened with The 10-year treasury yields have jumped since the start of the year nearly hitting the 1.2 percent mark today its highest level since last march so is this move worrying or is this perhaps a sign that the economy is on its way back guy we'll start with you
1: well i think you know my answer mel i think it's absolutely worrying i i do think it's a sign that the economy is maybe improving or there's going to be this pent-up demand or there's this money in the system but I also say that bond volatility, if you recall, in early 2020, bond volatility was a precursor to equity volatility, and I think that's what's going to happen again. You mentioned this huge move over the last few trading sessions. I mean, the 10-year yield has more than doubled in the last six and a half, seven months. That, to me, is somewhat troubling. Now, you could say the rates should have never been that low in the first place. Okay, but that doesn't mean that we haven't had that kind of magnitude move. And I still think we're going higher from here. I know we touched 117 today. It appears as though the 10 years headed back to this 145 level. And I do think at a certain point this volatility with rates moving as, as quickly as they are is going to be really negative for equities. It's not now. Equities don't care about anything. I think they should.
0: All right. Karen, um, you've been flagging the potential for inflation in recent sessions. Uh, do you think that this is a sign that people are actually worried that inflation is here
2: or coming? I think they should be worried. I mean, we see a lot of pockets of it, right? We see energy, we see food costs going up. We see, you know, um, a lot of, I guess, aside from commodities, um, housing prices have gone up. So I think they should be worried. Tomorrow, I think we get a lot of CPI data. So we'll start to get some sense of whether that's working its way through. I'm not sure. But I think think for the moment, it seems to have cooled. That 10-year auction actually went pretty well. So um, that inflation index that I followed just take, came off just a tiny, tiny bit. But I think overall, that macro theme of us seeing more inflation is going to happen. And I think some of the reasons are very good, which is the economy will recover. And we do have some supply demand constraints that will push prices higher. But I think ultimately we we'll work through that. But I think all that having been said, the economy will grow. And I think inflation will rise and that's how I'm positioned.
0: Karen had mentioned pockets of inflation. Some of those pockets are absolutely staggering pockets of inflation. Wheat prices over the past six months are up more than 25%. Corn is up 35%. Lumber is up 275%. Copper up 32%. Uh, Tim Seymour, inflation is everywhere except where the Fed actually looks. I think we're having some problems with tim's mic. um i'm sure he's in a deep thought right now but we'll try and fix that uh, and james mcdonald i'll go to you with that very question we do have inflation everywhere how do we how do we um rectify that or or you know trade the stock market knowing that there is inflation out there but the fed is not seeing it
3: right so you pointed out some of the runners today if you look at corn if you look at palladium if you look at gold, which will start to be on the rise now, you're seeing this inflow of capital into these ETFs, uh, into these commodities, and this flood of new stimulus It's creating an inflationary effect, and it's having a temporary lift to stocks, um, but it may be falsely interpreted as an economic rebound. Markets should be concerned. If you look at the economic measures like the PMI, cyclicals to defensive, et cetera, the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield, it's about 1% too low, and it needs to catch up. Bank of America estimates uh, the Democrats are going to inject 2 to $4 trillion in a deficit spend. This creates an uh, inevitable correction, in my opinion, with increasing rates. There's a higher equity risk premium. And so if we see a 1% increase in 10-year yields, that means we need to see P-E ratios of the S&P come down 18%, 22.5% on the NDX. Uh, And the 10-year inflation break-even at 225, it's the highest since 2018. And so I do think we need to be concerned here.
0: There's a big difference, though, between a 1% rise in Treasury yields and the rise that we've seen so far, especially if we are to believe that there is a natural cap potentially on yields simply because everywhere else in the world yields nothing or negative. Our colleague Mike Santoli in the Closing Bell just minutes ago said a staggering stat that about 40% of the world's yield is here in the United States simply because everywhere else has got negative or 0% yields. So, so, Tim, doesn't that sort of limit that upside to, to Treasury yields? I,
4: I think it does. And my, my mouth was flapping before with nothing coming out, which is nothing new for me. But, but I, I, I will say, this reminds me of 2007 when, when we started, you know, you talked about food inflation. Um, and also, it's not a coincidence that emerging markets have broken out to 13 and a half year highs. I, if you told me that yields had plummeted 30 basis points off of the levels of four or five months ago, that would have been a lot more concerning to me. Remember, we have a deflation problem. I, I, I agree with everybody here, and, and I'm as worried about Fed policy as the next person. but. Um, and I, I there are pockets of inflation but let's be clear uh, we're at 140 150 on the 10-year going into COVID why are we so concerned as we come out of it as we put more stimulus into the economy and we obviously see vaccines in a bridge to the other side and absolutely an expectation of pent-up demand I don't care where you are uh, if anything I heard you know the Fed mentioning today that that uh, while they don't feel the need to move too soon there are certainly some factors that have kept inflation down um, and and look I I guess I'm going to throw myself in the camp that I am not worried about this. Um, And I think equity valuations also, while it's easy to point to that element, um, I think people will choose to put uh, whatever P they want on P.E., Mm -hmm. um, depending on liquidity factors, which I think are much more important.
0: I said the Fed doesn't see this inflation. I I say that glibly, obviously. The Fed obviously sees all of these numbers, all of these statistics. But in terms of the preferred measure, their preferred gauge of inflation, these factors aren't the primary drivers. Um, but Guy Dami, on the conference calls that, that we are about to, to listen to in this earnings season, will we start hearing that? I would imagine we would on the earnings call. Uh, the CFO of Domino's Pizza, for instance, said that, that he expects food inflation this year to be between 25 and 3%. Um, I imagine that all of these inputs, uh, co- companies are seeing the rising prices of these inputs into their products
1: no question I mean we've talked about lumber prices for seemingly years I think I think copper prices you can correct me I think there are three-year highs uh, today you know all these things are going higher and and you you know you said it somewhat tug-in-cheek about the Fed I won't be as um, courteous to them if they don't see it they they shouldn't be in the jobs and if they do see it they're just not paying attention to it and telling the rest of us you know it, it's easy not to have inflation when you choose not to measure things that are inflationary and I know everybody knows that I'm a bit of a Fed uh, naysayer, and that's fine. I'll I'll take that label. Uh, but there's inflation all around. And to Tim's point about deflation, he's right about that as well, because we probably live in the most progressive technology time in the history of mankind. And as we all know, technology is the most deflationary force mm-hmm. in human history. So you have those two things working against each other. But again, I'll say it one more time: you have inflation in all the wrong places. And at a certain point, it's going to come back to haunt the equity market.
0: Let's get more on all this. Bring in Steve Leisman, of course. Who else would we ask about this topic? Steve, good to see you. Um, We've been having a very, uh, I want to say deep, but probably not deep by your standards, discussion about inflation in the Fed. Uh, In terms of what what the Fed actually is concerned about on the inflation front, what would it be primarily? Because it doesn't seem that they're worried about soybean prices going up and corn prices going up and lumber prices and copper prices and, and gold prices.
5: No, the Fed is concerned about an economy that's beset by uh, hundreds of thousands of cases a day of, uh, of COVID. It's worried about an economy that is at the moment perfor- performing below its potential and has been for you know, about a year. If you, uh, if you look at the way uh, the economy has been growing, the Fed is concerned about scarring to the economy from uh, 10 months of dealing with this virus. Um, the Fed is seeing, and 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 I, I just really disagree, I don't disagree, it's just factual, uh, that the Fed looks at all of that inflation data. Uh, what I'm pretty sure the Fed sees when it looks at that is you've had some areas of strong demand because people are at home, and you've had good prices rise because of that. But Fortunately, the Fed practices two kinds of economics, both supply economics and demand economics. And you've had a huge surge in demand from certain aspects of goods because people are at home. But you've also had tremendous disruption to supply. The way I believe the Fed sees things uh, playing out is you will have some inflation. You have a massive stimulus coming through. You'll have a rise in prices. But I don't think the Fed will see that as sustained. I think it will believe that that's temporary because what's going to happen what is the world that Tim Seymour, our international expert, I've been listening to you for years, what is the world that he sees? Why does he see deflation in world? Because it remains, as far as I can tell, a world of massive supply, a world mm-hmm. where when there is a higher than a sustainable price, you have massive competition come in and push those prices down, assuming our borders, by the way, remain open. That's another story we can talk about another time. But basically, you'll have this, you have this demand surge right now. You have massive supply disruptions. Over time, those two will equal out, and you'll probably be back to deflationary forces and the Fed's really number one problem, which is inflation that runs below its target.
0: Right. Um, I know that there's a lot of Fed speak today, Steve, that, that you're all on top of um, Esther George stood out to me at the Kansas City Fed, and I believe she said something to the effect of uh, inflation could bounce back much faster than expected once the economy reopens, it could be much hotter than people expect because of rises in, for instance, airplane tickets prices and hotel prices and things yeah. to that degree. Is right. that a right. widespread uh, belief amongst fed the Fedsters. I think
5: I- <laughs> I think so. But you kind of make my point, uh, uh, Melissa, in a couple ways. First of all, the airplane one is a great example. Does anybody believe that the idle airplanes in the face of higher airplane prices are not going to be brought back into service uh, if there's the demand for that kind of airline travel? That's the first way. The second way is Esther George who has been known as one of the hawks. But here's what she said when asked about her concern about inflation.
2: If inflation tips over two percent, I don't think you're going to find uh, the Federal Reserve reacting to that. Um, If inflation takes off in ways that are unanticipated, that, of course, will require some decisions
6: to react to that.
5: Uh, Melissa, I want to make just two very quick points uh, uh, to to my friends, the traders there. First, um, a one percent or one and a half percent yield on the 10 year on the 10 year bond. Is perfectly normal. A spread of one percent from the two and the ten, nothing is wrong with that. Stands in the way of the the economy uh, doing just fine with a one percent. We've been up to two hundred basis points on the spread there. What I cannot say, and what is entirely up to them, and I take a massive back seat on this issue, is what is the appropriate stock level relative to either the level of the ten year or the spread with the two and the ten. But there's nothing about any either of those levels, the spread or the, the level of the bond yield that gets in the way of very good economic growth.
2: Steve, it's Karen, let me ask you something about the Fed policy had said, you know, it used to be two percent, but then they changed it, we're gonna have it run hotter than two percent if it gets there. Right. How much further do you think it would allow to run and for how long?
5: You know, um, it's a great question, and I don't know that the Fed even knows the answer to that, either on an individual basis or collectively. Um, I think two and a half is not a bad number. I think three is a possible number for some of the most dovish members. Um, I think you'll have to see, I I think there's a sense of, um, they need to see sort of how the business is dealing with it, do they see this as temporary? You get a huge surge in oil prices. The Fed might look at that and say, you know what, that's going to work its way through the system. Remember, we had that huge surge in telecommunications, that decline in telecommunications prices. That worked its way through the system. I think it'll look to see if it's temporary or permanent.
0: Steve, it's always great to speak with you. Thank you. Pleasure. Steve Leisman. Um And before we move on, quickly to our traders, I want to pick up on a point that Steve made. If one and a half percent is normal, and let's say we get to one and a half percent. Let's say we get to it in, I don't know, seven trading days. <laughs> Since that's what we've seen so far this year, are stocks lower because of that? Show of hands. Are stocks lower? Well, James, well, you're nodding, a, but show of hands. I'm okay. Ch- ch-
5: yeah.
0: Guy, guy.
1: No, I was gonna say quickly. I think the resource no. trade. I think the no. stocks we've been talking about, the resource stocks, the the levered energy plays, the banks are probably higher, and I think some of these technology names. Some of these growth names are probably lower. I can't mm-hmm. speak to the market in aggregate, but right. I think you're going to continue to see this rotation.
0: All right. Well, our next guest sees a magic number on the 10-year yield that could wreck the market's hottest trade. Let's bring in Mike Wilson, chief U.S. equity strategist at Morgan Stanley. Mike, great to see you. What is that magic Excuse- number in your view?
7: Well, I wish that I knew that magic number. I'm not sure any of us know that there's a specific number, but You know, as James was uh, listening there on some of the numbers, uh, I think maybe from my note around this idea that there's just not a lot of wiggle room now, where if you get a 50 to 100 basis point move in the 10 year that's abrupt, um, you're going to see some valuation compression. And then to Guy's point, it may not be bad for the resource stocks of the banks, which is what we've been preferring. And look, this is core to our call. It has been since April we first said that maybe this cycle, we actually are going to get inflation, people thought we were nuts because we're in a pandemic. But the reality is that the policy response this time has just been very, very different. Right. It's it's quantitative easing, money printing, but then it's being distributed freely into the economy where it's being spent. And so you've actually created incremental demand. You're running above where you were in many areas on demand uh, in the economy um, as uh, the supply is probably going to be somewhat impaired. So you're going to get inflation, mm-hmm. and I think as uh, Steve said correctly, we'll have to see if the Fed views it as being transient, uh, you know, temporary, or they start to think it's more permanent. Look, I don't think inflation is a problem for the market. This is what we need. If we don't get inflation, then we got a serious problem. To Tim's point, so I'm bullish because of this, but I'm bullish on the parts of the market that are going to benefit from higher rates mm-hmm. and higher inflation. It doesn't, it, it, you know, it doesn't mean the market can't go down. It can. We've been talking about this idea for six months where the average stock is doing better than the index. It's a mirror image of what's going on for the last several years. And part of that story is interest rates, higher velocity in the real economy and some inflation.
0: In terms of, uh, of the rotation and your preference for, for things like banks over some of the growth in techie trades, Mike, um, does it, if the 10-year yield stayed where it is right now, would you still like uh, that rotation? Do you still think that continues? Do you, do you think that higher yields are simply sort of the kicker to the trade?
7: Yeah, I think that's a really important sort of point we have to consider because, look, the reality is is that rates, uh, ten-year yields, and, and rates in general is really the you know the piece that's missing. It, it, it's the it's the outlier. Every other asset class in the world is signaling you know higher growth and higher inflation. And rates have been pinned because people think the Fed doesn't want rates higher. Maybe that's true. Okay. now stocks and commodities and other asset prices have moved in front of that, meaning you've already benefited from a higher move in rates that the markets have uh, discounted what they think is going to happen. What I envision is rates going up. You get some valuation compression, maybe a consolidation, slight correction in the the broader market. And then you go back to these areas that will benefit from, from the rate move and really growth at that point. Okay, So, you know, I don't I don't think that this is a a problem. right? I don't think inflation is a problem. In fact, I would argue if you don't get inflation, you don't get higher rates eventually, then basically policy has failed. And that's when you have a problem.
4: Hey, Mike, it's Tim. I I, I would argue that the the market has largely just been responding to the P and PE um, because there, there are no earnings or earnings are, are certainly been made to be uh, inconsequential in 2020 and possibly 2021 until we normalize. So um, that to me is the biggest dynamic here. And I don't think a move to 140 changes that on the 10 year. Um, what do you think? I, I mean, ultimately, you have to assess really the, the P and PE all the time. Um, and sure. right now, no one cares about the PE multiple. Are you going to care about it in four or five months?
7: No, we do care about the P.E. multiple, that's, that's certainly our outlook call for this year was, you know, our view is that we think valuations, P.E. should come down by about 10%, but the earnings will more than offset that, meaning the forward earnings estimate should rise by 20%, and therefore, the, at the index level, you go up by about 10 Now, that's, okay, it's an interesting story, but the really interesting story is there's going to be stocks out there that see a greater than 10% correction in multiples as rates go up. And by the way, I don't think 140 is the target. I think it's much, much higher than that. It could be close to two uh, over the course of this year if we're mm-hmm. right about you know, economic growth. And there's gonna be stories that you know, valuations don't compress at all. Like the banks, they may even go up because higher rates and a steeper curve actually helps their story. So this, this is where it gets really interesting as traders or investors and what you guys do, and what we do. I mean, it's fine. this year is gonna be much more idiosyncratic. It's a bull market. It's a bull market of stocks. It's not a, it's not a stock market bull market.
0: Mike, thank you. Good to see you. Thank you. you. Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley. Mike had mentioned the steeper yield curve in banks. Obviously, the two-year yield uh, has been anchored pretty much as the 10-year yield has gone higher. And Karen, what we saw today was, uh, you know, J.P. Morgan hitting a new 52-week high ahead of its earnings.
2: Mm -hmm. Yeah, an all-time high. Right. I mean, it should be up ahead of its earnings. I'm not sure how much is priced in already. We talked briefly yesterday about You know, people expect that net interest margin to expand, which I definitely do as well. But I think there'll even be a lag effect, because going into the fourth quarter, the 10-year was only at 66 basis points. Obviously, it's much higher now. And remember also, J.P. Morgan and the other banks got in just boatloads of deposits that they weren't able to deploy quickly enough. So that's going to be additional net interest income, maybe not all in this quarter, but in next next year as well, plus the rest of their businesses you know, the capital markets, underwriting, the SPAC business, asset management, all those are just going gangbusters. So I expect good earnings, but they're getting priced in. All right. Coming up, we've got an earnings alert on KB
0: Home. That stock is hitting after-hour session highs with the call now underway. It's a 3.6 percent. We'll break down all the headlines from KB's quarter when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of KB Home on the move after reporting earnings. The conference call is underway. Let's get to Diana Olick for the details. Hey, Di.
8: Hey, Melissa. Yeah, shares up 4% in after hours after a nice beat in Q4 for the Los Angeles based home builder on both earnings and per share and revenue and no sign of any let up in demand, at least according to CEO Jeff Metzger. He said housing market conditions continue to be robust as the pandemic has helped propel demand for home ownership, accentuating all the financial, health, safety and emotional benefits it offers. New orders were up 42% year over year to the highest level for the company since 2005. And the cancellation rate dropped to 14% percent from 22 percent. Average selling price up five percent to 388,900. KB is on the lower end of the price spectrum, and that may be why there was no mention of buyers coming up against sticker shock, as we've heard previously from luxury builder Toll Brothers, as well as Lennar, which is more of a move up product. KB's backlog increased 54 percent, also to the highest since 2005, so it is well positioned going into the new year. Only wild card here is mortgage rates. They've been sitting around record lows for the past six months, but but they are now starting to edge up. Melissa.
0: Diana, thank you. Diana Olick, as we see KB shares jump in the uh, aftermarket session, they are now up 5% literally in just the past minute or so since Diana had been on the air. Um, Guy Dami, where do you go in the housing trade? As Diana pointed out, this is the lower end. So as opposed to the sticker shock comments that we heard from some of the others, um, they're seeing some pretty good backlog, low cancellations, et cetera.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. So, what she didn't she mentioned everything. And the other thing I would mention gross margins came in at 21%, which was better than the street was looking for. So, she nailed it down. A couple things in terms of uh, KBH and PHM, both pretty massive double tops going back from the prior all time high in February to the October levels. We've talked about that for a while. And if you think rates are going higher, you know, we just had a whole conversation about it. This quarter is obviously backward looking. And if rates do go higher, my sense is. It's going to be a bit of a headwind here. If you want to play the space, I think it continues to be in the names we've talked about, the Restoration Hardwares, the Williams-Sonoma. But quickly, Toll Brothers might actually be the most interesting play out of all of them right here.
3: James, where are you
0: in the housing trade?
3: I agree with Guy. I like uh, the same name. I think that um, looking forward, obviously, they made gains despite the rise in yields, which usually signals higher mortgage rates. And so we're all on agreement there, I think the expectation of stimulus previously boosted the housing market in March, and I think there's similar expectations now. So we can see a little bit more lift continue going forward. And you know, new housing builds up 20% year over year, very bullish. Interesting comment uh, about the emotional security homeownership provides. That's kind of I think a really prescient observation as we look at to people, you know, shifting the way they've lived over the last year going forward. Uh, I think that's a really prescient call in looking at this space uh, for continued pockets of growth.
0: Yeah, certainly a change from what we had seen prior to the pandemic when people were shifting to rentals, uh, Tim. But where would you go in housing right now, given given the run uh, in some of these builders? Well,
4: I think James is referencing the next round of stimulus. I think it's going to be incredibly bullish for the housing sector and where people are putting their money. And they're going to go to Home Depot and they're going to go to Lowe's. And by the way, those charts have done almost nothing for six months, and I think it's time to reload the boat. I I, I think a move higher in rates is not that significant relative to where they are historically. Uh, Home equity loans and the value people have in their homes, and uh, I think this nesting dynamic doesn't change. Look, I I like those stocks two months ago. Um, I like them even more on the the edge of of a whole new round of stimulus. they're going to
0: benefit all right coming up shares of gm charging to a new all-time high today we'll tell you the electrified headline that got investors all revved up plus get ready to clear your schedule the big news out of netflix today that could have investors streaming into this stock. we got the details when fast money returns Welcome back to Pass Money. GM driving to a record high today. The company announcing a new electric van, as well as some sky high ambitions. Let's get to Phil Lebeau, who sat down with GM Chairman and CEO Mary Barra earlier earlier today. Phil,
9: Melissa, those ambitions for electric vehicles will be part of a new business, a new division at General Motors, also a new brand. That brand and that division are called. Bright drop. And this is the electric commercial vehicle that uh, they plan to roll out by the end of this year. In fact, they plan to ship the first ones with FedEx being the first customer. That will happen by the end of the year. Commercial electric vans, that is the hot market right now. There's also what they call an electric uh, a if you will, to assist with the last mile. That was also unveiled today. This is all part of GM's EV push, and it's a massive one that goes through 2025, investing $27 billion, rolling out 30 all-new EV models by 2025, many of them here in the U.S. and North America. Three of those models will be new this year. All of this comes not long after General Motors... As you take a look at shares of the stock, we're showing you this, Melissa, because if you go back to September 8th, what happened on September 8th? That's when GM struck a deal with Nikola. Remember that? And just a day or two later, it started to fall apart. And ultimately, it became nothing more than GM being a supplier and Nikola being a customer. And a lot of people said, hey, that blew up in GM's face. Today, we asked Mary Barra, look, do you regret that move or would you do it again with a startup? Here's what she had to say.
0: We've done other um, uh, arrangements with startups, uh, so it doesn't make us hesitant at all. I mean, uh, of course, we wish that situation would have turned out differently. But one very important part is it validated our uh, hydrogen fuel cell technology. And we think that's going to be part of the solution, getting to a zero emissions world as well.
9: Mary Barra today talking with us about GM's EV plans including, you know, I asked her point blank, what do you think about Apple? You expect them to be a car? And she said, I'm not going to comment on Apple in terms of what they may or may not do, but they're going to be a formidable competitor. Look, there are no dummies in Detroit. They understand what the landscape is. And that's why, as you take a look at this stock, guys, you, you have to admit that General Motors is starting to finally get some recognition for not only the investment in electric vehicles, but also the Altium battery technology and the assets that they have with EVs. Okay. Not saying that they're going to take off like uh, like Tesla, but for a long time, the feeling at General Motors was we've got some assets here. and We're not being appreciated. That is starting to change just a little bit. Melissa,
0: part of bright drop is also offering software and services for fleet management and logistics. So that's recurring revenue. Is that new to to the business model of, of any of GM's businesses?
9: No, GMS had recurring uh, uh, revenue in a number of their businesses. Look at OnStar as a good example of that. They're now starting to, to do things with uh, their data that they're providing to the vehicles. You'll see this from all the automakers. Mm-hmm. I mean, they realize the value of, those, uh, of that recurring revenue, and that's what they're all, they're all driving there. And the electric vehicle, whether it's for you and I or in a commercial fleet, that's where you get that.
0: Yeah. This sounds like competition for Rivian, which is not yet public. Um, should be interesting. Phil, thank you. You bet. Phil LeBeau. And by the way, you can check, check out Phil's uh, entire interview with GM CEO Mary Barra on our website, cnbc.com pro. Let's trade this because we've been talking about a re-rating of GM for months now, Tim Seymour. Do you get off the train at this point?
4: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, you, you, you put your foot on the gas pedal and you rev it higher. I mean, look, uh, the commercial unit uh, at bright drop the, the work with FedEx and EVs to make their uh, their, their commercial lines more efficient. They're, how about Honda? And then yes, 30 new vehicles. I mean, Phil nailed the whole uh, construct of today's headlines. Uh, so let's get into what it means for the stock. First of all, uh, GM is is arguably uh, one of the most profitable auto companies out there. Um, they are making money, and they're also you know they're also the biggest EV seller in China uh, on their JV and with the Mini out there. So but. But but the multiple of this company is is you know still reflected in and i think a much maligned g m and i think that's uh yes it, it's starting to happen but but think of what you could do uh to the price of this stock if you change this multiple just a little bit and again a company that's gone through some painful moments in in taking out unprofitable businesses but twenty seven billion uh into uh e v through twenty 27 or excuse me 2025 it's it's an extraordinary commitment to what was already a commitment otherwise they wouldn't have these relationships this ultium technology etc so mm-hmm. i i i get longer gm
0: i feel like karen has thought about what you do with gm if you if you give it a little bit of a higher multiple compared to some of the uh, ev peers
2: right i mean the pe multiple here as we look for value and you know pe multiples that are reasonable you know, looking at a 10. Just imagine if GM were private and merged with a SPAC and came out with the numbers that they had <laughs> and the market tried to absorb that. Imagine where this would be trading. Yep. So, you know, that whole legacy yep. business of selling, you know, 7.7 million cars around the world and doing that profitably and, you know, cutting back in areas that where they weren't profitable, all of that, that should get some credit. But I mean, it's The only reason not to, to buy it here is the idea of, oh, it moved up so much already, um, which isn't a great idea because uh, the evolution is just really starting here. And finally, it seems to be getting, it's not like the, the multiple's gone nuts from eight to mm-hmm. 10. It never should have been at eight or seven or six or four where it was at the bottom.
0: I like thinking about it um, merging with a SPAC and what sort of multiple it would command in the marketplace, uh, Guy, because on, on top of <laughs> that, insane. Un- right? On, on top, unlike a lot of the other EV startups that have merged with SPACs or even just companies that have existed that have merged with SPACs, GM has worldwide manufacturing capabilities, <laughs> which not a lot of others can boast of.
1: It's, it's interesting, Karen, brings up an amazing point. And, 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 tr- and please listen, I'm not saying it's going there, but given what she just said, you're talking about a stock that would trade at a market multiple given the $6 they're going to earn, and it's a $144 stock. That's the math on the back of what Karen just said. But to back out of it and say, listen, the market multiple right now for the S&P 500, the forward multiple is about 24. If you were to give GM just half of that, it's a $72 stock. I don't think it's going to get that. But again, you know, Tim and I play this game You give it a 9 or a 10, and you can do the math. The 10 multiple on forward earnings is a $60 stock. And again, I don't think that's unreasonable in this environment. And And Tim and Karen have been on this. I've been late to the game, but that's something we've been saying now for quite some time.
0: All right, coming up, get ready to Netflix and chill. A lot more this year. The streaming giant doubling down on original content, the blockbuster numbers and how to trade it straight ahead. Plus, energy on the move and options traders see big games, gains coming for one key name. We'll drill down on that trade when Fast Money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. Some blockbuster news out of Netflix. The streaming giant announcing plans to release a new movie every single week this year. That compares to Disney, which has at least 15 new films in the works for its streaming service, and Warner Brothers with a slate of 17 movies for HBO Max. The news not helping boost Netflix shares today, though. Shares ending down the day almost uh, a percent here. This really underscores, though, uh, sort of the content arms race that has to go on, which, of course, requires a whole lot of money, James. So how do you feel about this move?
3: Yeah, I love Netflix. I think it's a great business. I think long term. They're gonna win, um, but as with any innovator and disruptor, competition comes and competition can be fierce, particularly in this environment where they had amazing performance in 2020 because of COVID. I think even with the new content announcement, Netflix seems unlikely to replicate the 2020 performance because of the things you've pointed out, extremely competitive space, gains by Disney Plus and Warner Media's HBO Max and NBC's Peacock. Stay-at-home appeal is gonna diminish. I think with the vaccine rollout, Um, And this original content, as you pointed out, leaves the company in a tight cash position. To compensate, they need to raise prices and doing that could backfire. Uh, These new lockdowns and increased job losses, people are gonna be paying more attention to what they're spending. And historically, price hikes have led to slowdowns in subscriber growth, especially in Netflix's US market. Having said all that, I think they have to do it. Um, I'm excited as a consumer to see what's coming. I think other people will, too. And ultimately, the arbiter of their success will be the quality of programming. If they nail that, I think this remains as a long-term strong buy.
0: I think it's something like 70 new movies or something like that, so something of that magnitude for the year for Netflix. A lot of it's original. Some of it has been acquired. Uh, Karen, I, I don't know if that's a reason for people to stick around on their subscriptions or to uh... open a new
2: subscription i think it's a reason to stick around i mean i know i feel like hungry for content i feel like i've watched so many things that i had on my list including some of netflix amazing content like the crown um, but i just can't get on board you know maybe it's just a i've missed the whole you know several hundred points up uh... i do think james point about you know if the um, vaccine is effective and people start to be outside more and, and they've pulled forward a lot of those earnings. But one thing, though, when they have raised prices, even if they lose subscribers, they have made more money. So if they do need to do that, that I think that'll be a positive for the stock. Sadly, it'll be without me. Yeah. A guy, what have you streamed lately and
0: how do you feel about the stock?
1: Uh, The Stanley Cup playoffs in 1974, I streamed on the Netflix. It was fascinating look back to when hockey was a much different game. It's one of my personal favorites. I know you probably were enthralled by that as well. And there's some embargoed news that we want to share, that there's a Fast Money movie coming out in September on the Netflix. With that said, quickly, (laughs) stock is gone. This is the longest period of time, if you look back, where it's gone sideways. It's been since September that it made its all-time high.
0: 470, if you're looking for a line in the sand. That's it. Can you imagine what that fast money movie would be like? It'd be so terrible. Nobody would watch it. It'd be like traded or faded, you getting it wrong, you know, a lot of stupid jokes. All right. Coming up, should you drill down for big gains, options traders, see opportunity in one energy name. We're heading to the oil patch for that trade, much more fast straight ahead. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at the XRT rising 3 percent to an all time high today. The move led by double digit gains in a handful of stocks, including Stitch Fix, Overstock, Etsy and Land's End. I mean, I don't know if this is just the expectation of more stimulus, Tim. that will power consumer spending even further. Um, but we're not necessarily in a seasonally strong period for retail.
4: Well, if you look at the XRT, it's outperformed the S&P by 38 percent over the last six months. So, you know, you tell me, I I, I think a lot of this is stimulus. Um, I also think that the inflation dynamics that we're talking about are fantastic for for some retailers, especially uh, Staples, but food retailers, they love this. Uh, And so some of those names you just mentioned uh, tend to be more e-commerce plays. um, But I think that's part of the story here. So uh, the outperformance of the XRT, uh, I I think, will continue at least through we start to to kind of see dissipation of the stimulus.
0: Yeah. James, where would you go in retail?
4: Etsy. Um, I like it. It's
3: unique. It gives it a competitive advantage. Uh, One of my favorite metrics about Etsy is 88 percent of buyers say that Etsy sold items they couldn't find anywhere else. And so it's got a little bit of a unique following to it. Uh, I think there's a lot of upside there. And as we've all said, um, the stimulus expectations are going to continue uh, to push money in this space.
0: I mean, I know we couldn't find a guy, Dami Sock Puppet, anywhere else in the world, for that matter, (laughs) aside from on (laughs) Etsy. Maybe there's a reason for that. Yeah, I'm
3: glad you
1: mentioned that. I, you know, I know you saw me smiling, so you knew exactly what I was thinking. I was in your
0: head. And this harkens
1: back to the days. No, you were 100%. And Lisa Villalobos, our old executive mm-hmm. producer, she was able to acquire that. She still has I'll it. push back on Etsy quickly. Uh-huh. We have talked about this stock, but traded three times normal volume today, was up over 10%. I think this is actually a level where... You can take the money, run like Eli Lilly last night, look for a pullback.
0: All right, we got some breaking news out of Washington. Elon Moyes got the story, Elon.
10: Melissa, Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney is now saying that she will vote to impeach President Trump tomorrow. She is the chairwoman of the House Republican Conference. And in a statement, she said that the president could have immediately and forcefully intervened to stop the violence at the Capitol. He did not. And there has never been a greater betrayal by the president of the United States of his oath, oath of office and his oath to the Constitution. Now, she becomes now the second Republican Congresswoman who will say that they will vote to impeach the president tomorrow. Another Republican, Representative Katko, has said that he will also vote with Democrats to impeach the president. This comes as Democrats say they do have the votes to impeach President Trump for the second time as they vote today to see If they can call on Vice President Mike Pence to invoke the 25th Amendment and remove the president from office, if that does not happen, as it is not expected to, Democrats will then move forward with an impeachment vote tomorrow. And now they will have bipartisan support for it. Melissa.
0: Okay. Elon, thank you. Elon Moy. And Fast Money will be right back. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got some breaking news about Regeneron. The company just inking a deal with the U.S. government for its COVID antibody drug. The stock is flat in the after-hours session so far. Let's get right to CNBC's senior health and science reporter Meg Terrell. Meg.
6: Hey, Melissa, this is a major deal, up to $2.6 billion, the U.S. government paying Regeneron uh, for up to potentially 1.2 million doses of this COVID antibody drug. Uh, Joining us to talk about this contract is Regeneron's CEO, Dr. Len Schleifer. Uh, Len, tell us about this major contract and really what it signals about the government's hope for using your drug uh, to help with the pandemic.
11: Right. Thanks, Meg. appreciate you getting us on at short notice. Uh, we think this is very important. At the end of the day, if you're going to fight this uh, uh, this terrible pandemic, you're going to have to use public health measures. You're going to have to use vaccines, but you're also going to have to use therapeutics. And we think one of the most promising approaches is to supply antibodies to people who really aren't making enough antibodies on their own. What we've learned already is that if you don't have antibodies, you're going to have a thousand times more virus in you than if you do make your own antibodies. And frankly, if you get admitted to a hospital and you haven't been making your own antibodies, you've got six times the chance of dying than those who have. So ma- giving people antibodies makes a lot of sense. And what we've already shown is if we give people antibodies. We can get rid of the virus much quicker. In the outpatient setting, we've been able to show that that actually it looks like you're going to prevent people from from getting hospitalized. We're still studying the inpatients to see whether or not we can actually prevent them from dying when they're in the hospital. But we think this is a very big deal. It's a a 1.25 million doses if we can get it all made in time um, by the end of June. Uh, And we think it has a chance to help a lot of people.
6: That's a lot of doses. And we've been hearing it's been really tough for some patients to get these medicines. Are you hearing about any improvement uh, in that situation? It does seem like the federal government is trying to step in to help. Are more people able to get these medicines now?
11: Yeah, it is a shame that it's been somewhat of a difficult launch, uh, but that's true with the vaccines as well. We're operating in in real time in a pandemic, not a lot of time to prepare, but things are improving. The government, for example, put out a, uh, a locator where you can go online. We hope that all the states will opt into that. Only about half have opted in so far. Some states are adopting what we consider best practices. Texas, for example, has opened up, I think, about 15 or 20 infusion centers in North Texas. Uh, The Mayo Clinic has figured out a way to find places in some of their satellite facilities where you can bring people in and get the infusion. I think that there's a lot of work being done and there's a lot of effort to try and make this easier. I get calls constantly, constantly, how can I get this? And we need to make it a little bit more user friendly Mm -hmm. because we think this is part of the real fight here.
0: So, Len, are there dosages of the cocktail, mm-hmm. the antibody cocktail, that are just sitting waiting um, to be transfused into sick patients as we hear the numbers climb? And, and what if you had to pinpoint what it was exactly, is it that p- patients aren't getting the prescriptions, doctors aren't writing the prescriptions, patients aren't following through and going to the trans- transfusion centers? I mean, what what is the bottleneck for, for this treatment?
11: Yeah, I mean, it, there is a... Uh, 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 an issue at all parts of the funnel, if you will. At the top end, not enough doctors, because it only has emergency use authorization. Many of the societies haven't said, well, we definitely have to use it. The, the NIH hasn't said you definitely should use it. The FDA has authorized it, the data look pretty compelling. Um, so there is a, uh, some issue with doctors really getting their arms around the data. On the bottom side of the funnel, there are, there's, there's a bottleneck of getting people infused. You have to bring a, a, a sick person with COVID to an infusion center. That takes some preparation, some PPE and so forth. Uh, But I think this is all now being worked out. There are doctors, best practices, doctors who've given thousands of doses already um, and can't get enough. And there are some places that don't even, uh, uh, aren't even taking the cocktail. So it's really um, uh, uh, quite varied across the country, but we're trying to get this more uh, homogeneous and more straightforward, so that if you, you meet the criteria under the emergency use, authorization. Your doctor can get you to a place where it can give you this infusion because the sooner you get it, the better it is when you're giving these antibodies. Remember, antibodies matter. Mm. If you're not making your own antibodies, you have a really much higher chance of having a bad outcome.
6: All right, Len, unfortunately, we're bumping up against the end of the show. I had so many more questions for you, but one thing I will notice, you and I have the same taste in books. I don't know if you can see this, but I got this uh, molecular biology of the cell right here, too, which you have behind you on the bookshelf. So yeah, some light I reading. Should. Len, thanks for joining us.
11: <laughs> thanks.
6: All right,
0: Mel, sending it back to you. It's nerding out, Meg. <laughs> Thank you, Meg Terrell, for bringing us uh, mm-hmm. that inter- interview about Regeneron. Guy Dami, let's get a quick trade off of this, the stock we see moving higher in the after hour session.
1: Regeneron uh, has 20% earnings growth right now, given the price it's trading at, it's trading at 15 times next year's numbers, well off the highs we saw about six or seven months ago. I think despite this move, it goes higher just on valuation alone, Melissa.
0: Yeah. Tim, where would you go in biotech? Do you think Regeneron um, is where to be for if you were to have a COVID play?
4: Well, you know, we, we've often questioned the profitability and you can just do some back of the envelope in terms of, of this order from the government. So, uh, you know, I, I think this, this news alone will continue to, to, to keep a bit under the stock that as guy pointed out. It pulled back a lot. But I, uh, we say all the time, I, I think the IBB is a great place for investors that want broader exposure to companies that are perennially in this mix.
0: All right. We're up 4% right now. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim, back over to you. Yeah, again, I'll just underscore,
4: say loud and clear, GM's multiple is going higher.
0: Karen.
2: Yeah, on the heels of that KB Housing News, uh, Whirlpool. I like the valuation a lot. James.
3: Nextera Energy. 2020 reinforced Nextera's position as the undisputed leader in wind and solar technology.
0: Guy, who would play you in a Fast Money movie?
3: Hey, Mel, I don't know, Brad
1: Pitt, maybe, I'm not sure. Did you okay. catch the
0: final score of the Alabama game quickly? I know, quickly? you predicted it last night on Fast Money and final trades.
1: Uh-huh. <laughs> Caterpillar into earnings at
0: the end of the month. All right, thanks for watching Fast. Mad Money with Dream Kramer starts right now.